listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Good morning, everyone. I feel really excited to be sharing today's message. Throughout this series, we've been looking at the significance of Jesus' death, his resurrection, but also his ascension. I don't know about you. I had heard about the ascension before, but I had never fully comprehended its significance. Because of his ascension, everything, all power, all authority, all might, all rule is under his reign and his lordship. This changes everything. This changes everything that the world is going through right now. We know because he has ascended that he is coming again, often called his second coming. I was thinking about this recently and and read that it's not his second coming as much as it is. It will be his ultimate coming that his first coming was just the preview. Jesus' first visit on earth, where we hear about in those gospel stories, was a lifting of the lid to the world that he wants to usher in across the whole entire created order. It's the advance notice of who Jesus was. It was what he stood for, how he was going to open in his kingdom. And his death, his resurrection and ascension seals the deal. And so when he comes again, no one knows the day or the hour, Jesus said himself, except for the Father. When he comes, that rule will be in its fullness. And that gives us so much hope, so much faith, so much love in a time such as this that the world is finding itself in. I want to explore this today. I want to look at it, though, in light of that tension we have in believing that this stuff is real, but it not necessarily being what we see the tension between the unseen and the seen. The formation cohort, which I've had a lot of people asking me about, is it happening? Yes, it's happening. We have a full class. It's just had to pivot to Zoom like everything else. This is the topic we've been looking at all term. How do you have a life where your beliefs match your lived experience? It's not God's heart that we believe for something in the future and not experience it now. It is not his heart that he die, die, rise again and ascend and us not integrate the realities of that into the everyday. In fact, that's why he calls the church the church, the people who get to embody and are the embassy for what his kingdom is. And so today I want to look at this question. How do we believe in an unseen world or how does our spiritual perspective shape our human reality? It's a critical question and mystic Evelyn Underhill kind of coins it by saying that discipleship, life on earth, is all about the supreme art of learning to live on the borderlands. That we are in the borderlands. We know that there is a promising future where Jesus has full and complete reign, but there's havoc in our reality right now. And so how do we live well on the borderlands that we're in? To get in there, I want to look at Ephesians. I know Mark looked at Ephesians 2 last week. This morning, I want to look at Ephesians 1, this incredible piece of writing from Paul where he details this glory of God. It's like he lifts the lid to the unseen world and goes, this this is what is happening around you, before you, behind you, is dictating the past and will shape our future. Um, And Ephesians is such a great book because Paul wrote a bunch of letters to different churches in the New Testament. But Ephesians is the only book where he's not dealing with a theological issue or dealing with conflict in the church, who would have thought, or dealing with particular behaviours. 
He's doing precisely what I just said, lifting the lid to the unseen world and then showing us how to live because of what lies behind the whole created order. So to get there, I want to have a look at Ephesians 1. We're going to look at verses 3 to 14. I'd love to read you this in the passage, sorry, the Passion Translation. The Passion Translation is a paraphrase, so it's not a literal translation, but I've chosen this translation because sometimes these passages, which is relatively well known, because we've heard it before, I can kind of just scoot over our heads. What I'd love to do is read this over you with a fresh take and allow just the mystery and the awe and the wonder of what it is this Christ has achieved for us uh, to minister to your soul. And so I'm just going to pray to get there that Jesus, as we engage in your word today and we heed the message that you're wanting to speak to us as your church and as your followers, I ask and pray that you would be made known, that Holy Spirit, you would bring your spirit of wisdom and revelation and insight to lift our heads to open our eyes, to engage with you and to be uh, encouraged and equipped in how to live now based on who you are and what you're doing. Holy Spirit, would you come do what only you can do and that is minister and awaken and equip. In power of your wonderful name. Amen. So this is Ephesians 1 verse 3 to 14. In the original Greek, this is 201 words without a full stop. I know, crazy. Lucky it's been translated into English. There are full stops, even commas. But I want, I want this to just wash over you as we dive in to the essence of today's message. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm has already been lavished upon us as a love gift from our wonderful heavenly Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus, all because he sees us wrapped up in Christ. And he chose us to be his very own joining us to himself even before he laid the foundation of the universe. Because of his great love, he ordained us so that, pardon, so that we would be seen as holy in his eyes with an unstained innocence. For it was always in his perfect plan to adopt us as his delightful children through our union with Jesus, the Anointed One, so that his tremendous love that cascades over us would glorify his grace. For the same love he has for the beloved one, Jesus Christ, he has for us. And this unfolding plan brings him great pleasure. Since we are now joined to Christ, we have been given the treasures of redemption by his blood, the total cancellation of our sins, all because of the cascading riches of his grace. This super abundant grace is already powerfully working in us, releasing within us all forms of wisdom and practical understanding. All forms of wisdom and practical understanding. And through the revelation of the anointed one, he unveiled his secret desires to us, the hidden mystery of his long range plan, which he was delighted to implement from the very beginning of time. And because of God's unfailing purpose, this detailed plan will reign supreme through every period of time until the fulfillment of all the ages finally reaches its climax, when God makes all things new in all of heaven and earth through Jesus Christ. We have been stamped with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. He is given to us like an engagement ring is given to a bride as the first installment of what's coming. 
He is our hope promise of a future inheritance, which seals us until we have all of redemption's promise and experience complete freedom, all for the supreme honour and glory of God. I don't expect you to fully comprehend that. I've just spoken a bunch of poetry over you. As I said in the original Greek, it's 201 words without a sentence. Greek scholars look at the Greek and are overwhelmed at how it was put together and the comprehension involved. The reason I, I wanted to read that over you is just to introduce and lift the lid over what is known and what is true about your identity and the identity of the church. Uh, this week in Renew, which goes up on Tuesday, we explore this particular passage in much greater detail. Um, but for today, I just wanted to have that as our introduction, as a background for where I want to go practically. But this Tuesday, um, you'll have more about that particular passage. But what you have in Ephesians, Ephesians 1 that I just read to you, is lifting the lid to the unseen world. And it goes sort of from Ephesians 1 to Ephesians 3 is the unseen reality. And then Ephesians 4 to Ephesians 6 is the practical outworking based on what has just been revealed and that Paul has unpacked. Eugene Peterson says it beautifully. He says that the book of Ephesians is like Paul being this skillful surgeon that is resetting a bone or a compound fracture where our beliefs and our behaviour begin to unite and become sort of a whole working system and a whole working body where we can have a life where what we believe isn't different to what we experience. And so Ephesians, that is the art and the gift of Ephesians. Eugene Peterson quotes specifically, Paul ranges widely from heaven to earth and back again, showing how Jesus the Messiah is eternally and tirelessly bringing everything and everyone together. He also shows us that in addition to having this work done in and for us, we are participants in his most urgent work. Now that we know what is going on, that the energy of reconciliation is the dynamo at the heart of the universe, it is imperative that we join in vigorously and perseveringly, convinced to what Paul describes as God's plan worked out by Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him. We know that no matter what we are seeing in our personal circumstances or in the world at the moment, these things will not have the final word. At Revelations teaches us, which just, spoiler alert, where we're heading after this week, that everything will be okay, that Jesus will have the final word. But we're waiting for that age to fully roll itself out. And for some reason, which I would argue is not coincidence, you and I have been born in this era, in this time, in this place. And it is our invitation to participate with what this God, this ascended Jesus and Christ Messiah is wanting to do in this hour, in this age. And so Paul is going to and fro on those borderlands, going to that world, coming back to this one, kind of being this mediator in between and offering up to us, the church, this vision of God's glory, which gives us our identity shapes our mindset, sets our perspective and therefore ends up determining our behaviour because of what lies behind us and what we approach ahead. So as I said before, 1 to 3, chapters 1 to 3 is the unseen reality and chapters 4 to 6 is the practical of the seen reality. But chapter 4 verse 1 has this bridging sentence and it begins with a therefore. Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, it means that everything that you've taken beforehand, 
for example, the grandeur and incredible nature of this, this glory of what God is, who he is and what he's done for us, that you are chosen, that you are destined, that you are lavished on, that you are gathered up, that he has made known things to you, means therefore we need to do something or therefore we live a certain way. So what Paul says in this bridging sentence, chapter 4, verse 1, the very first sentence that goes into the practicals, he says, therefore, I beg you to live a life worthy of the calling in which you have been called. I beg you to live a life worthy of the calling in which you have been called. What I want to do to get to the crux of this message is unpack this word worthy. This word in the Greek is axios. And axios is one of those words that comes with a picture in its definition. And the picture of axios is um, common to us. You know those justice scales that you see obviously represented in courtrooms and the rule of law, but also um, just as, as a concept of things when they're in, in equilibrium and they're fair and they're right and things are as they should be. When one side matches the other side, it's axios. It is made worthy. And often you'll put a weight on one side and a weight on another side, and they may not be the same thing, but if they are of equal weight, then they are worthy. Axios is the equilibrium of those two sides being equal, different, but equal, and therefore made worthy. And what Paul is saying and what we've uncovered so far in Ephesians and where he goes, and what he's saying in this particular verse, chapter 4, verse 1, is that one side of the axios is God's calling. So therefore, I beg you to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's God's calling. And the other side is our walk. That the two go hand in hand. This makes perfect sense because God's not going to do all the work and then we just rest on our laurels and wait on the couch. No, he wants to awaken us and equip us. And more importantly, he wants us to participate in what it he is he is doing. And so to live a life that is worthy is to live a life where God calls and we walk. God calls people all the time. God calls Abraham in the Old Testament. And Abraham goes from um, the land of earth, which he knew and was familiar with, to an unknown land. And he walks across the desert to get there in pure faith. And he, God's call matched with his walk results in him being called the father of our faith. Or Moses, who is hiding in Midian from shame and guilt, He's this name, he's this word, this voice calling his name. And in hearing his name being called, he discovers the name of the one who's calling him. And in his response to that call, he ends up freeing a whole people group from captivity in Egypt and through God's partnership ends up resulting in the nation of Israel that is still around today and all these promises that come through that. And then Jesus is at the shores of Galilee and he calls four men. And when he calls their name, he asks them to come and follow him and they drop their nets. They drop everything they're doing and they follow him. And then that group of four turns into 12. And throughout the course of Jesus' life on earth and then his death, resurrection, ascension and so on and so forth, more people are getting called and more people become part of his called out ones. The church who have responded to this call of a God who is good, who is lavish, that is in passionate pursuit of his people, calling them to come to him. Eugene Peterson, when he talks about call, says this, a call is not an impersonal cause that makes something happen in a mechanical way. 
God's call comes into our ears, beckoning us into the future, bringing us into a way of life that has never been experienced in just this way before. A promise, a new thing, a blessing, a place in the new creation, a resurrection life. God may not call you like Abraham to up and leave and walk the desert or a Moses to spend 40 years in the wilderness freeing an obstinate people, but he might call you or has called you as one of his disciples who will have your own unique story and journey and part of his unfolding plan, but is yours and has you have a name and is calling your name. I found it really interesting in this time of, of COVID where church has completely had to change how it expresses itself, which has actually been a good thing. But people wrestling with, wow, how much of my faith and my belief was because I had a routine? And how much of it was because I, I have actually heard my name called by this glorious Christ. I haven't seen, but I believe in and whom I know is true. God, in his mysterious ways, is using this time to do a bunch of stuff. And one of the most significant things he is doing is he is stripping our lives right back. He's stripping our lives back to bare bones. He's creating space. He's taking away distraction and he is using it for us to be able to tap into his voice and reacquaint ourselves with what John would say later to these Ephesians in Revelations to our first love. Not to models, not to services, not even to a community of people, but to the first love, the God behind it all, the resurrected and ascended Christ who has ultimate rule and ultimate power. God's call is the first part of you living a life that is worthy, worthy, and the first part of you living the life that you know that you're designed for. Hans von Balthasar is this incredible Catholic theologian actually says this, when Jesus calls, he facilitates an inner vision, which as such is not just any life. It is given to us by the Holy Spirit as he strengthens us inwardly to be able to receive. The interior vision enables us not to descend into our own depths, ourself, but to discover the ascended Christ who lives in us. We can only meet this interior Christ, however, in faith. And it is only possible for the person who, emphasis mine, embraces what Sarah is about to discuss. Didn't want to let it out too soon. But it's only possible for the person who embraces what we're about to discuss, which points us towards that Christian love, which is the axis, that root word again, an epitome of Jesus' entire legacy. Peterson and Balthazar are both saying life doesn't work unless it is in conjunction with the way it was wired to be. This is my paraphrase. And the way in which it was desired, designed and wired to be was in relation to the God who creates life. He then calls us and it's unique and it's individual and it is given as an inner vision for us to receive. We can't even do it. It's all grace. It is given to us by him. All we can do is respond. And so with where life is at, we're not to tinker with our inner life or make something happen. But we are asked to live a life worthy. We are asked to respond to what is happening in us. And so my first question to you practically is what is God's call at the moment? 
maybe big and loud and strong. Sometimes it is. But as we're about to discover, it's often in the daily, subtle, everyday reality of practical living. What is it that this God who calls is doing in you? Awakening, healing, stirring and wanting to breathe upon. This is never about our self-actualization, something that we can never hear enough about and never hear enough about it, Red. It's our tagline, more than me, after all. This isn't about you going inward to brood. This is about you meeting figuratively, face to face with this ascended Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father and rules the cosmos. He wants to be known. This is a relationship. It's not a mechanical formula. As Balthasar says, this is dynamic. It is a relationship. The next thing that is worth pointing out here is that this word call is the root word to the Greek word of church. Um, the word ecclesia is one of the Greek words for church. And what I love about the word ecclesia is that it was an ordinary word taken out of ordinary Greek life that everyone would have known. It literally means um, an assembly of people, a people who are called out to then be part of an assembly. Paul uses this word nine times in Ephesians. And Ephesians really are, is about reminding and showing the church her true identity about what really lies beneath and what really shapes who she is and who she's really meant to be, not necessarily who she becomes as sometimes a lower C church as opposed to the big church. And it's not just any group. At the moment, we're not an assembly of people because we're not allowed to gather because of restrictions. But this assembly of people we, we discover are the ambassadors of the kingdom of God. When Jesus in his first coming came to give us the first tastes or the preview of what the kingdom is going to look like, the church becomes the people, the gathering, the group of people that are shaped by that kingdom. It is not a service. It is not a program. It is a life of the ascended Christ resurrected in us and imbibing in us and renewing us. The embassy of the kingdom. I love that as a metaphor. I heard it a couple of years ago. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. When you think about it, an embassy is a representation in another land. And if we live life on the borderlands, the border of the unseen and the seen, and in that unseen world, we have been and given the foretaste of a kingdom where justice reigns, equality reigns, love, righteousness, goodness, grace, only what is true of who God is, no evil, no suffering, no sickness then we get to be the ambassadors of what that kingdom represents. And those ambassadors are the church, the called out ones, the gathering of people that get to live by a completely different reality. In Ephesians 4, 8, Paul says that when Jesus ascended, which is what we've been looking at, he then gave out gifts to the people. That the church is the ones that are called out who are then empowered with specific gifts from the Spirit of God to enable them to do something that they can't do otherwise. Some of you will have heard me say it before, but if the mission of the church was dependent on good communication and organisation and structures and programs, we would have changed the world by now. The world and the church need so much more, and particularly in this hour. We need a body of people, an assembling of people who are called out of the status quo and the norm of everyday life, who have an had an encounter with the living Christ who has called them. He then meets them and through the Holy Spirit fills them and gives them gifts that helps them run on this earth with a new reality 
opening people's eyes with evangelism, speaking spiritual truths with prophecy, teaching insight with teaching, giving words of encouragement or help, service, compassion, hospitality. All of these things is what Jesus left us when he ascended. It's like his glory came kind of falling off his robe as he ascended into the heavens and we get to carry those gifts and bring them out into the world. And so it's the people who are doing that that have got those gifts marked by the Holy Spirit, representing the kingdom that is his capital C church. It's not a brand name of Red or Hillsong or the Salvos. It's a people mobilized and empowered by this living reality. And it's needed because every time you and I and us as the church walk into that space, Paul later says that it's God's intent that through the church, the manifold wisdom, the reality of this ascended Christ would be made known to the rulers and the powers and the authorities in this heavenly realm. That Jesus has absolute rule and authority, but in the heavenly realms there is still a war going on. There is still evil, there's still injustice, there are still evil spirits. And Paul would go on to say, that the prince of darkness is the ruler of the, or the prince of the power of the air. And that what is happening around the world at the moment, Paul would later say in Ephesians 6, this isn't against flesh and blood. This isn't against race. This isn't against politics. This isn't against viruses. Your interpersonal conflicts aren't, aren't you, flesh and blood. This war is against the rulers, powers and principalities. And what Paul is saying, that it's through the church that the rulers, powers and principalities of the dark age are shut up. That it's every time you and I walk out of God's call into this reality on earth with a perspective of who he is and what his kingdom is about in the spiritual realm that is unseen, we wage warfare. So every time you deal well with your lust, with your gossip, with how you're spending your money, how you're dealing with that struggle or that temptation, whatever it is, do not underestimate the witness that that is to the powers and principalities. So my practicals here, number one, what is God's call right now? What is it his voice is saying? Number two, do not underestimate your obedience in the private victories. You are changing atmospheres in that space. So the next part of our axiom, or to be an axios, to be made worthy, God's call is our walk. God calls, we walk. Our walk doesn't achieve this. Our walk responds to this. When they go hand in hand, we're axios, we are worthy. No one on this planet wants to live a life out of alignment. And so much of our pursuit, whether it be ambition, whether it be social, whether it be goal-orientated, at the end of it is we want to live a good life. We want to live a life that's worthy. And there are two things that undercut us living a worthy life. The first one is shame, which I happened to speak into a couple of weeks ago if you didn't catch it. It's a really big one. But the second one isn't about shame, where there's condemnation and, and unfair sense of disconnection. The second one is when we're just out of alignment that we know that there is something more that we're built for, but we just can't access it or we can't get there. It's like a back that is sore that needs to go to the chiropractor. What Paul is saying here, for you to live a worthy life, there's the call. There's also your response. There's your work. The call is all grace. Grace 
isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. You can't earn this grace. But we respond to all that has gone before and it impacts us and changes how we live. And so this walk from Ephesians chapter 4 right through to 6 where it talks about the powers and the principalities is all about the practicals. And I'm going to really encourage you to read this after today. Read 4 to 6 and be as amazed as I was that after all this glory and wonder and a lifting of the lid to the cosmic reality of who Jesus is and what he's achieved for us, Paul then goes, so let's live well in our households and in our workplaces. It's kind of like partly a little bit of a letdown, but massively a massive relief. That for you to live a life worthy, it isn't about masses of evangelism or masses of writing or speaking with a microphone or whatever it is the Christian world has painted it to be. It's quite the opposite. It is the everyday reality of how we do relationship with each other, that because of Christ, this is therefore how we love. It's how we conduct our marriages, that because of all Christ has achieved for us, this is how we posture ourselves in marriage. This is how we treat our parents as children. Parents, this is how we treat our children. This is how we behave to our bosses and how our bosses treat us as employees, so on and so forth. It is the practical, mundane realities of the everyday life where he gives us wisdom and insight, enough manna for the day. And what Paul is saying is that because of this, all the things, all the fears and all the ambitions and all the insecurities that would have driven you in the everyday don't have to drive you anymore because you are chosen, you are destined, you are bestowed, you are gathered up, you are lavished upon as we explore on Tuesday. And because of that, your needs are satiated and you get to walk out in the everyday, driving to school, going about work and doing the dishes. And that is a great witness to the rulers and the powers and the authorities in the unseen realms. My encouragement to you is to echo Paul's words, I beg you to live a life worthy of the calling in which you have been called because God is on the move in this era and his eyes are going to and fro looking for people whose hearts are truly his, that he's calling his people and he's wanting to speak that he's asking his people to trust and believe in faith that his way is the right way and that every time we walk out of that in faith, we're actually changing the spiritual atmosphere and to then walk in the private, in the everyday of home and workplace with this setting our reality. And so Jesus, as we reflect on these things, I ask and pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of us about what that means for us today. In the issues we've got with relationships, in the tensions we have at work, in the worries and the concerns that we have about what is going on in the world right now, we lift our eyes to see you seated at the right hand of the Father. And although that feels like a mystery to us, our soul knows it to be true. And we gaze upon that reality and in gazing on that reality, we ask and we pray with all wisdom and spiritual insight and practical understanding that you would show us how to put one foot in front of the other, that you would raise up your church all around the world 
people who have been marked by the life of this Christ and, and have the deposit of that Holy Spirit, that you would, Holy Spirit, be with your church in this hour. As you are shaking things with the things that are not of you fall to the ground and the things that are of you, would you breathe on them and multiply them? And would you speak to each individual, encourage them of their part in it? that you do the work, but we get to participate and we say yes to what it is you're asking of us in this time, in this age, as we wait for the fullness of your kingdom to come. In the power and the glory of your wonderful name. Amen.